Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. The healthcare system is hard enough to navigate without having chronic illness diagnoses to boot. Feeling all at sea and looking for direction, advice, and deeper understanding? From a medical specialty glossary to tips on talking to your health insurance providers, download your free copy of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with blogger and content creator Morgan Green. Morgan focuses on holistic healing with chronic illness and lives with myasthenia gravis, also known as MG. And she just told me sort of a wonderful way to remember it. Her initials are MG and so are myasthenia gravis's initials. So kind of a perfect combo there. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. You're the first person we're talking to on the show about MG. We'll call it MG from here on out. And uh, I'm really interested to learn more. And I'm sure our audience is also really curious as well. So I I really appreciate you taking the time and and lending your your story to us today. Yes, I'm excited. I hope I don't bore you guys. Oh, no. Not possible. (laughs) Not possible. So let's start at the very beginning of the story. This is always how we do this. I would love for you to tell us when and how you first realized that something was going on for you in terms of your health and how you've taken control of your health since then. Right. Um, So I've talked about this multiple um, times, like on my platform and on YouTube. But basically, I am... before I was diagnosed, I was super, super like into the gym and very healthy and just like focused on, oh, I'm about to get these abs and I'm going to be like, snatched. <laughs> and um, I noticed that um, like as I was doing certain activities, like I was trying to run, my run times were getting slower mm-hmm. and um, I was in the gym and like I just didn't have the stamina that I used to. I used to stare at myself in the mirror. If you've been to any gym, they have like the whole the long wall of mirrors. I cannot stand the mirrors. <laughs> it's like that's not what so I want to like, look at right now. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like looking, I'm like, man, I look super fuzzy in the mirror, but I'm just thinking maybe I'm just tired today. I overdid it. Let's just go home. Um and so I was also probably about April or May, I started doing weekly 5Ks because I wanted to train for a half marathon. So I'm just slowly working myself up. And one day after a 5K, I um, woke up and I should tell people I should keep pictures of this. I woke up basically looking like I had a stroke, like the entire left side of my face wasn't moving. Mm -hmm. And it was very scary. Um, And so that's basically what started me trying to figure out what the heck is happening with me. 
Um, I was having like really bad headaches. And again, like the blurriness that I was experiencing, not being able to focus, it was coming and going, but it wasn't consistent. So I'm like, okay. And I was getting headaches. So it was like, okay, well maybe, you know, it's like my, I've always had um, sinus and allergy issues. I'm like, well, maybe this is just really a lot of pressure and it's just causing things to get out of whack. Yeah. So I basically, I went to like the ENT. I went to the allergist. I went to all these people. And finally I was like, okay, well, I need to go to the eye doctor. Hmm. And um, I'm like, well, maybe I'm just, you know, getting old. I've never worn glasses before, but I was like, maybe I'm just getting old. And this, this is just what <laughs> needing glasses means. I was going to say, this is what your 30s looks like. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the time, I was 20, 25. Right. Okay. So quite yeah, young. So I was, yeah. So I'm like, okay. So I went to the eye doctor. And um, so while we're doing the test, like my vision, I was able to close one eyelid and my vision was perfect. Like I said, I've never needed glasses. So each individual eye vision was crystal clear. But when they were opened, it was the double vision and um, the droopy lid. And so the doctor, or what do they call? Oph- I don't know. The ophthalmologist. Ophthalmologist. Yes. Yeah. Came back in and she did like some of the tests, like follow my finger and go here and go there. And that's when she was like, your eye isn't moving. Mm. And I'm like, what? And she was very, very concerned. She was like, you need to go get an MRI tomorrow. And I'm going to refer you. Like, she was very, very like, no, this is something serious. Let's not play. Go get your scans. Go to neurologist. And that's what kind of set me into like panic. Like, I remember leaving the eye doctor in tears. Like, Well, so it's one thing because it's like she's trying to help you be on top of your health. But it sounds like she was like her attitude was a little alarmist. And of course, that would freak you out. Like, I would have been nervous, too. So I and then the day of my scan, um, I remember driving to the um, to the test center and it was kind of far from my house and it had rained. So it's raining. I'm mm. having double vision issues. The wipers are going. I'm in traffic. Mm. And I ended up having to make like a makeshift eye patch out of like a paper towel that I wrapped around some sunglasses just to kind of keep my eye closed wow. so that I could focus on the drive. It was so scary and so, so frustrating. Um but I made it. Mm. <laughs> I made it and I did the, the scans. And of course they say, your MRI is fine. And I'm mm. like, okay, well, what the heck is going on? Um, which then led me to the neurologist. And then, of course, that led to a whole new set of tests. And before they finally diagnosed me with MG. But that was, those two to three months were probably like the most stressful times of my life because up until that point, other than um, just, you know, my sinuses and my allergy issues, I've been air quote healthy, you Mm. know, like nothing has ever happened to me like this. So it was definitely um, a shock to the system. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So is there, I mean, it seems like right now I'm talking to you, no one can see this, but um, you know, you've got function on both sides of your face. You've got equal function. So were you able to regain that function through treatments for MG? What does that look like? So um, that first year, six months to a year with MG were very, very aggressive and very, very um, intense. So after I was diagnosed, I ended up with my um, finding a specialist who specialized in, in MG. Wow. And um, I mean, this is a rare disease too. to find a specialist yeah. is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and like, so I like when we were, um, the MGFA, they're one of the resources that people with MG have. So they have a list of doctors and it's not a lot, 
but there were a few in the area and one was at like john hopkins one is at the university of maryland but those people had like wait lists that were like super extensive Mm. um and the neurologist that diagnosed me and i tell people on my platform all the time like having a neurologist or someone who's familiar with your illness is okay. But having a specialist like take your treatment to another level, because this is what they do day in and day out. Like when you're just a regular doctor, they have to cover it to graduate, but they may not be super duper familiar and like in the weeds, like a specialist is. Um, and so at that time, I remember talking to my mom, cause again, it was just very scary for all of us. And she's the one who actually found my specialist. So we called like, I think three different doctors and um, we were just trying to figure out who was going to get me in the fastest. And it so happened to be this specialist. Mm -hmm. And from day one, it was just like, we clicked. I was like, I love your vibe. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, I went to, so the original Rollis, he just gave me um, Mastinet. He kind of, and I don't like to bash doctors because I know they're all doing their best, mm. but he, um, he just kind of delivered the news. Oh, you have MG. Uh, there's no cure. Here's a medication. You'll just be on it for the rest of my life. And he just sent me on my way. And didn't give you options or anything. Just told you the one thing. Right. Mm-hmm. When I met my specialist, the first thing I told him what I had been given, he was like, first of all, we're going to max you out on that medication. Don't, and then he added prednisone to mm. my, cause you know, prednisone kind of helps with like flares and things of that nature, kind of getting things under control. Um, and that was like a short course. No, oh, wow. long, long. I was on prednisone for three years. That is a 60, long time. 60 milligrams a day. And then we started weaning me off after about two years we started the weaning process wow. yes very very long time but and that's frustrating too because like prednisone does a lot of stuff to your body that like makes you not recognize yourself <sighs> yes yeah yes <laughs> in the mid- in the midst of already not recognizing yourself in many ways yeah definitely and um so the, the my first meet so at this I think I'm seeing him my specialist about twice a month now so the first meeting, you know, we get introduced and he prescribed me to prednisone. Then at the next meeting, I'm like, you know, it's not getting better at the time. It's now summer. And, you know, summer is a really, really um, crucial time for people with MG. Hmm, interesting. So the, the hot weather impacts yeah, hot weather symptoms. is a trigger. So like my symptoms are still like escalating. So he then added in IV treatment. So I did like a week long IV IG treatment followed by weekly um treatment and I did that through summer and each time I was getting a treatment I ended up in the hospital because my body just it just really wasn't recognizing or gelling with the IVIGs Hmm. and then um possibly about a month later he introduced CellSap to me okay (laughs) so now I'm taking all these different medications I believe at one point I was taking about 21 pills a day Yeah. This is often the story, isn't it? When you have a chronic illness. It is. And one of the symptoms of MG is difficulty swallowing. Mm. So you want me to swallow all these pills throughout the day. I have to schedule my meals because these you have to take on an empty stomach. These you have Mm. to take on a filled stomach. Uh, And they were all, you know, messed with you in different ways. And um, so about October, 
things still weren't getting better. And he just sat me down and he said, well, there was a new research study that came out that said um, people who have a thymectomy surgery within the first six months to a year of being diagnosed show better chances of going into remission. And what kind of surgery is that? Can you tell us what that means? So a thymectomy, um, basically, so you have your thymus gland, your thymus sits behind your chest bone and your thymus is the gland that produces your antibodies. Mm, Interesting. Um, Wow. Yes. And so with MG, basically what's happening in the body is that your antibodies are attacking your cells, your nerve cells. For some reason, they think it's it's an agent or it's a foreign body and it attacks it. So it's not a neurological condition. It's an autoimmune condition. It's neuro-auto. It's both. Interesting. Because it's attacking those neuroreceptors and kind of making the signal weak. So it's both. Um, And so removing, traditionally your thymus gland is supposed to shrink. Like after it does its job in like, you know, childhood through adolescence, it's it's done its job because you pretty much are immune to whatever you're immune to in your surroundings. Um, But if your thymus gland is either overactive or um, enlarged, it can trigger some type of autoimmune response. So I was faced with having the thymectomy and they, thankfully, you know, technology, there Mm -hmm. are so many different ways of having a thymectomy. Like the easiest way is the robotic thymectomy where they do like three little small incisions and kind of pull out the thymus in little chunks. Like the, like the Da Vinci thing, right? Yeah. Mm. But sometimes they get in there because they can't fully see and things go bad and they have to do a full sternotomy which wow. is basically cutting you from like right under your trach through like mid chest. Wow. And um, it looks like you arm. didn't have to, like I can see some of your chest right yes. now and you didn't <laughs> have to get that. So that's good news. Yes. So I went in and I was, they tell you, they're like, okay, well, if you go in and it gets a little scary, we're going to have to go this other route. And I'm like, sure. okay, I went ahead and moved. So I had my surgery December 23rd. So two days before Christmas. Wow. And I was home by Christmas. Um, it was pretty simple because I was I was doing well, so they let me go Christmas Eve. I went home, and um, yeah, that started my healing process. So to me, wow. honestly, I honestly feel like the thymectomy was the thing that started me healing. Into I don't call myself um, being in remission, but I am able to function without taking medication every single day now. Wow. So you were able to go from taking 21 pills a day, you had this surgery, and now you're just focused on holistic health and keeping yourself in your best wellness possible with sort of diet, exercise, lifestyle. Definitely. That is amazing. Now, I want to know also, because like this idea of the thymectomy, did they have to break your chest bone to get through to where the thymus is? How do they do that with the robot? If I did the traditional um, sternotomy, yes. Yeah. And that healing process, they tell you it takes like two months yeah. on out. But because they went in, it's like three little incisions coming from like the rib area and one mm-hmm. under the breast. Wow. And I, they were able to get it pretty easily. And it's funny because like, I still have kind of like phantom pains where my scars are. Um, and (laughs) I talked to my doctor about it. He said, yeah, because they had to break through like your connective tissue. So like when your body's sending nerves, like it's nothing there. You kind of feel like that little itch or that little shake or that jolt of electricity there. And I'm like, Oh, the human body is so crazy. And it's fascinating. (laughs) 
Yes. Wow. So at that point, I mean, so talk to us a little bit more about MG. Like I want people to understand what MG is. I know that you mentioned that it's a neuro autoimmune condition, but for you, the way it manifested was that you were losing sort of mobility in half your face, um, having trouble swallowing. What are some of the other symptoms that showed up? Yeah, so MG is um, neuromuscular autoimmune, and it affects any of your voluntary muscles. So that's speaking, swallowing, breathing, arm, leg motion, the ability to hold up your neck, smiling, um, eyelids. So a lot of people with MG will have like droopy eyelids or ptosis. They'll have double vision. Um, But like the biggest thing is the difficulty breathing, because typically when you have difficulty breathing, you're like borderline of a myasthenic crisis and that leaves you hospitalized. Um, So if you just have um, like the double vision or like the droopy lid, they classify that as ocular MG. But if it goes beyond like your eyes, you have generalized MG. And then within MG, there are rare subsets. So I'm actually musk positive which is like a spit. So on a general MG test, I come up negative, but you have to take this specific test. So within the one in the 100,000, I'm within that 10% that has this musk gene wow. that you test for, um, for MG. So it definitely ranges for person to person. They call MG the snowflake disease because, you know, they say no two snowflakes are exactly the same. <laughs> and that's pretty much the thing. With I MG. hope you're also politically liberal. So you're like extra snowflakey. <laughs> yeah, like, my family, like queen snowflake. Always, my family has always like um, made fun of me. Like, of course you would have like nothing easy. You want to yeah. be just like super extra. I'm like, yeah, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> you're a little extra. Yeah. So what do we know about the cause of this diagnosis as well? Is it genetic or is it environmental? Is it a combination of both? The research says that it is not genetic. However, there is research that says that if you have a family member that has a different autoimmune disease, it makes you susceptible to having um, MG um, as far as passing it on. So if a mom has MG, When her child is born, there's a chance that the baby will have neonatal MG, but it leaves within two to three weeks. Wow. Yes, which is weird, but they definitely say it's not uh, related. I don't have anyone in my family with MG. However, my mom and my grandma both have sarcoidosis. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. I have a cousin that has um, lupus, but I'm the only person that has MG. So it's just... It's, it's interesting. I like, sometimes I wish I'm like, I wish I was a doctor or a researcher so I could really get into the weeds of that. Like you don't know the impact. And so it's, it's affecting you. Well, in many ways you, you're sort of an honorary doctorate because you've had to do so much of your own research. And obviously you've done that. You've really looked yeah. into what the condition's all about. Definitely. I think yeah. that that's super important to be like aware um, because it was funny, even before my doctor approached me with a surgery, I had been doing my own research. So I had pre- been prepared to come into that appointment like, yo, did you see this? <laughs> <laughs> Time for a thymectomy. Exactly. Wow. And he, you know, and he was on the same page as me. And that's, I love that my, me and my doctor are very much on the same team because I would hate to have to fight for what I feel like is the best treatment for myself. Yeah. And so... 
um, after the, you know, the thymectomy, I let him know early up front, like, I don't want to be on all these medications. So what's the quickest we can wean off? Like, what does that look like? And he was very accommodating with me and we worked super hard to get me to where I am today. Wow. It's amazing. So how many years is it now since your original diagnosis? Um, it was four years in May. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And it's just so wonderful that, you know, you saw your health decline, but you've seen it turn back around in your favor. I mean, it's seeing you as like a vibrant person with your whole face working right now, you know, it's, <laughs> do we know about any like long-term implications, you know, with the thymectomy, are there things that you have to continually monitor, um, in your own health just to make sure that you don't go into flare again? So my specialist, he believed that once you improve, you don't regress. Mm. I don't believe that. I just don't think that that's possible. Mm. Um, I think that it takes a lot of preventative care. Yeah. But I, for me, like I, once I learned about the different things that are triggers for me, like heat is a trigger, stress is a trigger, Mm. um, menstrual cycle is a trigger. So I actually began tracking like all of these different things, just see what was really kind of causing like those flare ups when I I love the way your mind works, like the way that you have like approached this is so you're the perfect patient. I'm sure your doctor was thrilled to meet you. (laughs) I'm like a a recovering nerd. Like (laughs) give me a chart. Let me write it down. Yeah. But this is exactly what doctors want too. They want data that they can, you know, see patterns in. Yeah. Um, So I started tracking that and I was able to say, okay, well, if I know this is coming, like I know my menstrual is coming on this day, I'm going to pretty much take it easy so that it's not going to coast me into like some type of flare up. Mm. If it's hot outside, hey, friends, I'm probably not going to be there till after the sun goes down Mm. and the temperature drops to a certain um, point. Um, As far as the dimectomy, it's pretty like I go in once a year for like just a checkup with the surgeon um, and just to see how things are going, but it's pretty much cut and dry. I haven't had any issues other than the fact that my, um, I have two scars. So of the three incisions, I have two scars and they do sometimes itch and are a little painful, but everything. That's the trade off for like, if you had lost function (laughs) in your, your throat completely. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's really the way to go. Wow. I definitely feel like, and that, but that's just me. I know people who have had the thymectomy and they said it didn't work. Um, also, the research that I presented um, to my doctor, it said it took up to a year and a half before you could see like the full benefits mm-hmm. of the thymectomy. I don't know why it takes so long, but I can definitely see like from the time I had the thymectomy to where I am now, it's been like, yes. It's it been that amount of time. And it also could have just been the combination of, okay, I made sure to eliminate a lot of stressors. I made sure to pay more attention to my body and what I'm putting into it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it was one particular thing, but in my mind, the thing that kind of like flipped it was the thymectomy. Wow. It's so fascinating to me. So did you find that you needed a personal advocate throughout this journey? I mean, you were pretty young when you were diagnosed, Um, and you, obviously you've mentioned that you have members of your family who live with their own autoimmune conditions. Mm -hmm. So did you lean on anyone among your friends or family as you were going through this experience to sort of humanize the experience for you? I didn't. And I, I tell like looking back now, I don't feel like I asked for help enough. 
Oh, wow. During those very, very crucial and critical times. Um, when I was first diagnosed or when I was trying to figure out diagnosis, I did turn to my mom. So at the time I was 20, 25, 26, and I was on my own. So I had just purchased a house. Like, you know, I'm living my best mm-hmm. life, vacationing. Like I, I'm grown now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then boom, I'm humbled and I need my mommy again. And so mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, frustrated because like all the specialists are booked and she really like, you know, I told my mom, like my, my pit bull, like if I, mm-hmm. I'm not a very um, aggressive person or personality, I'm very, very reserved and like relaxed and kind of just like, oh, let's go with the flow. But my mom, she is like on it. Mm-hmm. So she, I don't even know how, but she found that uh, my specialist and she got me that appointment and she went with me to my first appointment just to make sure that he was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was on my own. So I think in terms of advocacy, she helped initially but since then I feel like I kind of I definitely think I pulled back I pulled back a lot um from friends family gatherings like I really just I didn't want to burden other people because I knew I was in a place of like being like a Debbie Downer and I don't like to transfer that type of energy but also just trying to cope and understand like everything that's happening like it's a lot um so, you know, you do kind of like recluse into yourself and like your own little protective shell. Like I would go to work and I would come home and that was it. Um, I would talk to people occasionally. I would text people. Yeah, I'm alive. And then that's it. Like, don't don't ask mm. any more of me because you my favorite thing is when people ask, are you OK? And a lot of us in the chronic illness community will say, yeah, I'm fine. Oh, I'm OK. <laughs> but that's not true. Yeah. It's just that we don't want to make other people uncomfortable with the realness that we're going through and it's like no I mean you do you really want to know mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah <that's> a lot. <laughs> absolutely um, yeah so I I definitely feel like I did not take advantage of my support system but you have a support system is the thing like you've yeah. discovered that you do have that I do so during those times on like those first six months um my mom probably lived like 30 to 45 minutes away from me and it would be like the middle of the night and I would be like, I'm not feeling well. And she would drive and take me to the hospital. My grandma would do the same thing. Like they were always checking on me when I um, had my surgery. I didn't even have to leave my bed. Um, Cause that, you know, that was Christmas. So my mom bought Christmas to me in my bedroom, her mm-hmm. and my brother. And, you know, my friends and family, they were bringing me food, you know, because that's the holiday time. Everybody has food, bringing me a place to eat and just checking on me. So I did have a support system. I think it was just that feeling of I'm not my best self and I don't want other people to see me that way. Because, you know, like those symptoms, like a droopy lid, like I tell people all the time, I felt like a monster. Mm. (laughs) Like, yeah, you can't recognize yourself. So who are you to other people? And then that fear of, okay, what if I'm out and my lid starts to droop? Or what if I fall? Because I walked to the mailbox one time and fell just on yeah. a short trip to the mailbox. So just the fear of uncertainty and just processing it, it was definitely a lot that I felt like I could have leaned heavier on my support system or at least let them know. But mm. I don't know if it maybe just self-shame and just the stigma of being sick yeah. and just thinking like, oh, this is 
this is the, my new life. This is all I'm ever going to be. Well, I'm also thinking like being female in the middle of this too. It's like yes. when you're already dealing with body image things that are thrust upon us from a very young age, mm-hmm. and then your body starts going haywire. And when you look in the mirror, it looks different to you. You know, like you said, like you felt like you were a monster. It's like you probably already were dealing with internalized issues about the way you looked, let alone the things that had to do with your, your diagnosis. Yeah, it was, Mm. it was definitely a lot. And it's taken a lot. Like people say, Oh, you're so positive. You're so this. And I'm like, y'all like, it was real. I often wish that I would have started sharing more with other, you know, members of the Spoonie community when I was going through like my darkest period, Mm. not because, um, I, you know, wanted like, Oh, get on my side, but more so because I want people to see like, I'm this way now because of what I did go through. Not because I'm just like, had these rose colored glasses on and don't know how real this thing gets. Mm, Absolutely. Do you think also, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're really close with your family. Do you think that your mom and your grandma stepping up for you has made you closer with them as well? No, I'm all. I'm a mommy's girl and a grandma's. So girl. you were already like, super close anyway. It didn't yeah, make yeah. Um, definitely. I think that my mom. You know, she. So I was an only child for 21 years, and then my wow. mom had my brother. So it was her and I for so long. So you know, I'm her baby girl. Like it was. It was difficult. It was. I felt like it was more difficult for her to accept that something was going on with me. Um, it was very hard on her. Like I remember one day her breaking down in tears and crying and bursting like, and I was like, I understood her need to cry, but I, this is happening to me. Like and you're crying. Like imagine how I feel versus my grandma. She's very, very um, much more um, compatible with like my personality. Leave even killed and just reserved and she was able to kind of like handle it and adjust and if it did bother her like emotionally she removed it from me so that I wouldn't feel guilty about you know coming to her with certain things Mm -hmm. so I think it's interesting to watch how other people like in your support system handle your diagnosis because everybody kind of handles it a different way and it does as much as it is happening to us it affects everyone that is close to you or, you know, cares about you in some way or another. Absolutely. So tell us what a typical day is looking like for you now. You've gone through this process of getting ill, getting the diagnosis, going through various treatments, going into not remission per se, but, you know, really reversing a lot of the symptoms. So how are you managing potential flares. I know you mentioned, you know, being aware of temperature and things like that, but as you're balancing the demands of work and life, how are you working around these potential symptoms flaring up and and being aware of the fact that you do have a chronic illness diagnosis that you have to work around? Right. So I do work, I work full time and, um, I was blessed that when everything was happening, I was in a a good office. So my mm. supervisor, um, she was very sympathetic to everything that was happening to me. So she would say, you don't look well today. You want to just go home <laughs> for the wow. day and just do some work at home? Yes. Yeah, and so they, they knew. So you told them about the diagnosis. 
they were there when it was like my symptoms were originally happening. Mm. So like she could see the effects. And mm. um, so she was very, very sympathetic. And even though I have since moved on from that office, I still have the same supervisor. So it's oh, like, wow. yeah. You've <laughs> maintained that level of understanding. Yes, it's definitely like a covering and a protection mm. that I don't necessarily have to. Because I always tell all the people, I'm like, <sighs> sometimes you don't want to tell people or explain to people your situation yeah. and get the, the pity and, you know, those different things that... Um, or be discriminated against. I think a lot of people are worried about telling employers because they're like, yes, this, they might fire me or, you know, get annoyed with me because I of something I can't control. Sometimes you just... I'm, I'm not going to come in today. Mm. And so I've definitely been blessed in that area that my supervisor who was with me when I was first diagnosed is still my supervisor now. And she's very, mm. very sympathetic and flexible. Like, you know, even with the COVID stuff, um, I didn't go into work. I just started going back into work, but I only go one day a week and I go half days and I have my own office. So I close the door. I'm in there by myself. Um, she's very, very flexible and just making sure that I'm taking care of me. Mm. So I think that that was helpful and that I didn't have that level of stress. Yeah. Um, so I work, I, of course, you know, I do my blogging and stuff, Mm -hmm. but in general, I try to eat air quote clean. (laughs) Yeah. Not because, um, well, yes, because of course, but after being on prednisone for so long, of course, I have extra LBs that I'm trying to shed. <laughs> <laughs> A lot is but, one of the things prednisone does to you, yeah. Yes, I feel like because I've tried it. I even I tried the AIP diet. Are you familiar? Yeah, with that? I I do AIP myself. Yeah. You did? So I did strict AIP for a month, mm-hmm. and I really didn't notice a difference in mm-hmm. myself. So what I did from there was I was like, okay, well, I'm just still want to try to eat clean and make sure I'm getting myself. I looked up like um, supplements for um, for energy, mm. things like I've experienced fatigue, supplements for energy, supplements to complement what I was feeling. Yeah. And so I try to just implement little things here or there, nothing over the top, because I feel like when you're trying to make like some type of lifestyle change, you don't want to like shock yourself. No, you have to do it gradually. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do it gradually and it has to be something sustainable. Like, okay, I'm going to do this for 21 days and then what? Like, right. It was to me, AIP was fine, but I just didn't think I could handle that long term. And when people say, oh, they have to do it for like six to eight months to like really see the results. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's but good because you know yourself and that's super important. Yeah. Like I definitely never, cause I'm a recovering uh, perfectionist. So I didn't want to <laughs> set myself up to beat myself up when I wasn't able to, you know, be strictly AIP or adhere to a certain lifestyle. Um, so overall I try to eat healthy. It did man, 70, 30. Like I still, my, my Achilles heel, my favorite thing is a Coke Slurpee from 7-Eleven. I love it so much. <laughs> like since childhood. But it, it's so and important was, to have those joyful moments, isn't it? It's like we have to do things in moderation if we can afford to. Definitely. Hmm. Um, and recently, so over the past two months, I've started transitioning into more um, pescatarian. 
I don't think I'm necessarily going to label myself a pescatarian because I know like come Thanksgiving, I'm going to have me some turkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But up until then, I'm going to try to, you know, try the meatless meals and try, you know, eating more fish and, you know, different things just to see how that feels and gels with my body. Um, yeah. More Mediterranean. Yes. I do want to, I've also like, since I've, cause again, I try to focus on holistic wellness. It, one of the things that I feel like MG illuminated for me was just like my lack of self-love and like, cause I was so hard on myself and like, it kind of makes you question, like, if you loved yourself, why are you so hard on yourself for something that's beyond your control? Like this illness, you didn't cause it. And so that basically prompted me to do so many things like journaling and self-reflection and just thinking about, okay, well, what can you do to be your best self? And even, even if this doesn't change, are you really going to hate yourself for the rest of your life? You know? So just trying to figure out how I can. Well, yeah. And who benefits from that? Who benefits from you hating yourself? Yeah. Yeah. And so gaining like mental clarity and about focus and just like self-love. I practice like daily affirmations. Um, I try to move my body about 20 to 30 minutes a day and whatever that looks like. Sometimes it's not, um, it's not what it was before MG. Like it definitely isn't. I'm not, you know, the girl killing it at the, uh, the lift bar, (laughs) but I am trying. And that took a, that was probably like the biggest thing because I was such a type A personality and it was like, I set a goal, I meet the goal. So having to redefine what fitness meant to me, having to redefine what wellness meant. And it's not necessarily a number on the scale. It's about what am I putting into my body from everything from like what I'm listening to, to what I'm watching, to what I'm saying about myself. Um, to how I want to move my body today. So some days it's yoga. Some days I'm able to run. I just got a Peloton. It's the best investment. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I love my Peloton. Um, jumping rope, like simple things and just showing appreciation for my body and what it's able to give me that day. Because I recall the days where I wanted to do something simple like walking and I couldn't. So yeah. it's like, it's like a one, like I'm grateful that I was able to kind of pick up these lessons, but I feel like I could have learned them another way. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but sometimes it does take our body betraying us in a sense to wake up to that. And it sounds like you really have, and you've, it's given you something sustainable to work toward. Definitely. Um, one of the books that I've read, cause again, I'm a, a nerd, <laughs> <laughs> It's a, I don't know the author, but it's called The Body Keeps a Score. And it talks about oh, how our yeah. bodies are a reflection of the different traumas that we have incurred throughout our life. And like when you have suppressed like emotions or stressors, it our bodies display that through chronic illness. And I'm like, man, you mean that <laughs> that time? It's like this yeah. is And so I make it a point to make sure, oh, we're not carrying no stress. We're not carrying any horrible vibes about ourselves. We we are going to be like, even if the MG is still here, we're going to be as healthy as possible. I'm going to do my part to heal my body. And I just want my body to kind of meet me halfway. 
Yeah, absolutely. You're treating it like a partner. Yeah. I'm wondering with a diagnosis like MG, and especially at this point where you're not having any physical symptoms that are manifesting that people could see, right? Mm-hmm. Have you been in situations where you've been confronted and forced to validate your diagnosis to people who didn't understand it because they couldn't see it? I don't think that I have had to necessarily justify it mm-hmm. again i i was really really quiet about it so recently you know with covid um they allow people with you know at risk or the elderly to go in early and i struggled with that for mm-hmm. a long time because i was like i'm gonna go and i'm gonna walk because there's no plaque or anything that you can say hey i have mg it's yeah. like going to this line at this certain time and saying hey i have an illness let me in yeah <laughs> Um, I really, really did struggle with that because I didn't know if they were like, no, you don't. You look fine. Um, But I did it one day and it was fine. They were just like, go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think that I've had to kind of justify that I have illness. But one of the things that I have encountered were when people ask me how I am and I'll say, I'm okay. And they say, Oh, well, you look fine. You look normal or you this, this, and this. And I, I try, I used to, used to irritate me. Like, yeah. I felt like the hate fire building up. I know. It's the classic <laughs> thing for all of us spoonies, isn't it? We're like, it's not that simple. <laughs> yeah. But I try to, um, just remember like, you know, it's not their fault. They're, you know, for lack of better words, ignorant to what it really is. So I try not to take it personally. I can recall like that summer where I was having like the worst symptoms ever, also partly because I wasn't slowing down to paying attention to my body. I was like, MG not going to take care, take uh, anything from out of my step. And I was still <laughs> traveling and out here just partying and acting a fool. And um, my best friend, she got married. And um, and I recall one of, we had a conversation after the wedding. She was like, yeah, I couldn't tell you were sick at all. You looked fine and all the pictures and this and this. And I'm like, yo, you don't even know what I was like. I literally had an IV treatment Mm. the day before and I went to bed early. Like I did so much to prepare so that I wouldn't ruin your day. And I guess I should have took it as a compliment. Like, yo, cool. I did my job so well that you couldn't even tell. But it was just like, really? So what you wanted me to be like, what yeah. was me in all the pictures? And yeah, would you would you have put up with that if I'd been, <laughs> yeah, like you been true? With, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I'm wondering as well, you know, in terms of your experience in the healthcare system, like mm-hmm. it sounds like you had a pretty great experience that like you Took, took a few months, but you got your diagnosis and then you found your specialist right away. Have you had any experiences, particularly related to MG, where the way that you look, I mean, we're talking about, oh, you look fine, you know, the way mm-hmm. that you look has, you think, had an impact on your level of treatment, particularly because you're a woman of color, walking into a hospital, walking into an emergency room. Do you see your gender and race in particular having played a role in other in clinicians or practitioners treatment of you? So in terms of my MG, no, but my mom, so my mom seems to believe that the first neurologist that actually diagnosed me, Hmm. he um, was a smidge racist. I just thought Uh, that he just didn't have bedside manner. Um, But looking back, I can see how 
she might have interpreted that. Like when he told me I had MG, like he didn't even make eye contact. He kind of just looked at the files and was like, yeah, mm. you have MG and here's your pills. Um, matter of fact, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very matter of fact and callous. Not very, like when you're telling someone who's 26 years old and has the rest of their life ahead of them that they now have something they're going to have to live with for the rest of their life, you would expect it to be delivered with just a little bit more tact than mm. he did. And so I don't know if that was racially driven or if it was just, that's who he is. Right. Um, but beyond or he's that, a misogynist too. Like it could be a little bit of both. Yeah, it could be a, yeah. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, thankfully, because I do have my specialist, I don't feel like I've ever been treated a particular way. Um, that is so like Yes. I, and I know that it's like rare because there's so many. However, two months ago, um, <laughs> Again, I told you guys I'm transitioning to pescatarianism. Mm. So the day one I tried, I actually got a fish bone stuck in my throat. Ooh. And um, so, the, and then of course it's COVID during this time. So first I went to urgent care and they were like, oh, they didn't see anything. And they told me that I should just take like some cough drops to kind of soothe it and it would be fine. If it didn't work, I'd go to the emergency room. Mm. So then I went to my local emergency room and they tried to do a procedure, but they still couldn't see anything. And they ended up transferring me to a hospital. And again, I'm in the hospital. I was admitted overnight. Um, and I'm telling these people, like, it hurts to swallow. It hurts to talk. I'm in extreme pain. Not once did I get pain medication. Um, and they sent me home wow. from the hospital still saying that they didn't see anything. Three days later, I was on my couch and I actually coughed up the bone. Wow, you are so lucky. So, the, I mean, they yeah. could have sent you home to die. Yeah. And so, like, that was when I was like, so the, like, even if there was no, because they said, oh, well, it may have, may have just scarred, because I was actually coughing up blood. They said, oh, well, when maybe it just scarred it and it's gone now because they couldn't see anything on the x rays or anything. Mm. And I was like, even if you can't see anything, I'm telling you, I'm in pain and you didn't offer me any pain medication. Um, and I guess because of where I am, I'm in a very, um, wealthy area where, uh, people of color are pretty wealthy or considered to be the standard quo. I never considered that it was because I was a person of color or a woman. I just thought that this place just gives bad service. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's all of those things probably. Yeah. And so, but when that happened, in light of all the other things that are happening, it kind of just like a light bulb went off. And I was like, so did you not give me pain medication because I'm a woman? And you guys think that women have, because you know, women in the healthcare system are pretty significantly equivalent to the black man in the police. Like we are very, very underrepresented and undertreated. And not believed. Yes. As far as like our pain threshold. So I was like, well, why y'all at least give me like a little bit of Tylenol 800 something like I'm in pain. Uh, not that I could swallow the Tylenol 800, but y'all could have given me a little something via IV. Yeah. Just to make me comfortable. I was in there for 12, 18 hours. I couldn't eat or they told me not to eat or drink until the ENT saw me. So I wasn't able to eat or drink. I was in pain and they gave me nothing. Wow. Um, And so stuff like that makes mm. It makes me thankful that I didn't have to um, deal with something like that when I was in a myasthenic crisis because those are super serious. Um, When I had my thymectomy, 
my doctor, when my surgeon told me, because I was taking pills at that time, she said, just bring your pills with you, keep your pills in your bag and just take them on your regular schedule. Well, the nurses came in and they were like, you can't take that. You can't do that. And they took all my medication from me and said that they were going to administer my medication to me at the prescribed time. (sighs) But they actually were late. And so at that point, like, I'm like shaking and I'm like weak. And then my mom's like, where's the nurse? You guys need to, you know, this, this, and this. And so the surgeon actually had to like tell them like, no, I told her she could keep her medication, give it back to her, let her do what she needs to do. So it took And it's all, that's all a policing of your body. I mean, that's people not trusting that you can take care of yourself too, which is like, yeah. Like I do this every day. Like you're you're late. You got something going on in the next room and I'm sitting here. I need my dosage like on clockwork or I can feel it. I literally feel. Would you say that, I mean, given your experiences, but also being aware of the experiences of other women and other people of color in the medical system, would you say that racial and gender inequity in the healthcare system is a public health crisis? Definitely. No one's ever said no when I asked that question. Definitely. I joke all the time to my friends. I'm like, I need to move somewhere where healthcare is free because, and I feel like- Don't we all- like, I don't understand why I have to pay an arm and a leg for subpar treatment. And like, I'm paying insurance, but on top of that, I still got to pay out of pocket. And yeah. it's just, it's a headache. And it's crazy when I feel like healthcare should be a standard. Like, this is something that we all need. Um, and so it make I didn't know why well, I wasn't, a, I think I knew, but you aren't really aware until again, it affects you when you have a chronic illness and you're in the weeds of the healthcare system. The actual test for um, my MG, because I actually was retested a year or so ago, um, just to see if I was in remission. And I got a bill from the the blood work, $1,800. What? And you have health insurance. That was with insurance for one vial of blood. They didn't even take a whole bunch. One, a singular vial of blood. And I was just like, are y'all serious? And I got to pay $1,800 for y'all to tell me I'm still sick? What what is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I was so just like defeated at that point. Mm. And the, the thing that kicked me over the top is I do flex spin with my job, and so you have up to a certain to the end of the year to spend your your money. And mm. they didn't send it until beyond that window. They didn't send the bill to beyond that window. So I had oh. used the rest of that money to just oh my buy goodness. glasses and different things because I needed to spend it before it expired. And yeah. now you send me eighteen hundred dollar bill like. What what is happening here? Yeah, it's really awful. And that's that's one of the huge issues with the healthcare system, isn't it? That like the administrative issues that mm-hmm. come into play when we're looking at sort of pay to play treatment. I mean, let's talk about the healthcare system a little bit more here. Like let's talk yeah. about I mean, these are ways in which it's not working. Are there other ways it's not working that that you've observed and ways in which it is working as well? Like are there pros and cons that you can dig into given your experience? I think that some of the um, technological advances, it is working. So like 
I remember when I was first diagnosed and going to like the ER and like having to explain to them, I would take like a booklet with me talking about MG. These are the medications that I should not have. These are medications that I can have. This so there was no excuse for people not to understand what yeah, you were like. Like I would take it with me. And now I find that when I go to different places and I say, oh, I have MG, they're aware. Oh, so wow. I feel like every time that happens, I'm like really excited and I feel like, thank you. Like you just made this, this much more bearable because I don't have to like spoon feed you this to treat me. Um, so I think that that's working well. I think that some of the smaller practices merging with like the bigger university systems and like them having a track record of all of your history is working. Cause that's good. Like y'all are talking to each other. Like I don't want to have to relay a message from you to them to y'all yeah, should be able to access each other and pull on our record. Like, I love that. Um, But in a lot of ways, it's still very, very broken. Like the cost of prescription medications when they're so, and the lack, so the lack of medications, the lack of of availability, I know IVIG, I don't take it anymore, but at one point there was a shortage of it because it's used to treat so many different autoimmune conditions and people weren't getting their treatments. Because yeah. it was a shortage, and I know that that's that's not cool. Like, if this and also, like, what creates the shortage? Is it actually like the movement of money, or is it the actual product? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of conversations with my specialist about you know just big pharma and how because mm-hmm. so <laughs> when I was when I went to him for my first um, consultation, there was actually a shot that he gave me. I think it's called Tinsulin. They gave me, he gave me the tinsulin shot. And within two minutes, my vision cleared up and my droopy wow. lid was open. And so I was like, well, why wouldn't they make this shot in a longer extended? Like, cause like before I left his office, it was over. Hmm. So why wouldn't they make something like this that lasted longer? And he was just telling me it's about patent and money and <sighs> just the different things that so make that's it getting difficult. in the way of helping people. Yeah. Like when did, healthcare become about a bottom dollar versus saving lives mm. that 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 you know that's a problem <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. so talk to us about your advocacy work because obviously this is you stepping up for yourself as a patient but you're also creating content on social media and through your blog um yeah. not only for other chronic illness patients but also for people who are interested in holistic health. So talk to us about what you do as an advocate. Right. Um, So I always loved writing. And again, like that first year with MG was probably my hardest. And I, one year after I was diagnosed, I wrote a, I call it a love letter. It wasn't lovely to my MG, (laughs) just some, some, uh, like a synopsis of my relationship and kind of just venting. And, it really helped me. And I realized that, yo, like, this is going to be how I'm going to go through this. So I'm going to work through these emotions by writing it out. Mm. And so many people reached out to me and like, oh, well, I can relate so much. And yes, you put it perfectly. And I could never find the words. And I was like, it's a whole community of people out here that can't really find the words or like, just like me, just trying to figure out how am I going to make it through this. And so I definitely don't want to say that I took it upon myself to like speak for them because I'm not, but I just, 
I know what it feels like to be in that place of very being very vulnerable, being very confused and afraid and frustrated and not being able to articulate what you're feeling. Um, also, on top of that, when I started doing, they tell you don't do it, but I did it. I Googled MG and like the stories and there was nothing pleasant about MG. <laughs> On the web, yeah. very scary. A lot of people and death stories, and I wanted to um, talk about just some of like the weeds of it. Not just I have MG and then I died. Like I wanted to kind of just talk about like you can live with it. You can do some things. Like no, it's not going to look the same, but you can still live. What I like to say, live your illest life. <laughs> um, I love that. So, <laughs> You know, I think it it is, you are, your old self is kind of dead, but you can still have a rebirth and reframe what it is that your life is going to look like with a chronic illness. Um, when I started looking up just general people with chronic illnesses, you know, blogs and different things, you know, you have mainstream ones like Lupus Chick and I forgot the other um, big one, but I didn't see a lot of women of color. And I wanted a place for, or I was like, okay, well, there's no one here. I guess I'm going to have to do it because I would never want, you know, now that I'm 30, (laughs) 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 the next group of young women in their twenties being diagnosed with MG to Google and not have anything or any representation. Mm. Um, And also have a representation of only negative stuff and not the positive stuff. Yeah. So I... I don't, it kind of just came from that. Um, and also just my need to, I'm like, I'm getting off these pills or these medications. So whatever I got to do, like I need to just do different things. I've always been kind of, I guess, teetering on the edge of just trying different things, um, natural living, but knowing that I was putting like the different medications in my body, i began like a journey to just try to be healthier and be more natural and pay more attention to what I was putting in my body and on my body. And it kind of just stuck. So, you know, kind of an awakening. Yeah. It was just like, okay, well, wow, this is in this, this is in this. Oh no, I don't want to use that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You also, when you start paying attention, you can kind of see like, Oh, I like, I used to have really, really bad eczema. So I changed like my detergent. I started making my own butters and different things for my skin and using like natural soaps and stuff. I haven't had an eczema flare up and I don't know how long. And it's just wow. like, yo. And a lot of it probably is like the synthetic fragrance oils, but it's about being in tune. Like I really wanted to just be in tune with like my body and what it needs. Everybody needs something a little different. So it's not a one cut thing, but just getting to know my body because I felt so disconnected. Like, I don't know what you're doing down there and it don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Are two different planes. Like I'm telling you, you go yeah. left, you go right. Well, you, it sounds like you used your diagnosis as an opportunity to reconnect. Yeah. Um, and but I, there was a process I, to get there too. <laughs> yeah. It definitely wasn't conscious. It just kind of just like happened and it possibly just out of my own nature of being just, you know, I'm going to try this and I'm going to try that and I'm going to, I'm going to keep trying and also being very, very strong willed. And, um, I latched on to, I can't control the illness. I can't even control my body right now, but there are things I can't control. I can control what I eat. 
I can control what I put on my body. I can control so many things. So that need to just control something kind of led me to mm. where I am today. And um, I would definitely say like, I'm not a do it this way type of person. I mm. put the information out there. And if it's for you, you'll receive it. If it's not, leave it where it is. Um, but I think that for the most part, I've seen great results from kind of just like transitioning and like holistic wellness isn't just about, oh, you're going to be a hippie and <laughs> it's just about, you know, making that connection, mind, body and soul. And so it's about, you know, how am I feeling mentally? What do I need emotionally? What does my body need? Um, doing those type of check-ins. So making sure I'm getting my proper hydration, making sure I'm getting enough rest, even though, you know, prednisone, one of the things it does is give you insomnia. I'm still not sleeping through the night. Um, that's something that I'm definitely working on every single night mm-hmm. to kind of get better at. It's just, it's learning myself, what I need, like trying different things. Like, oh, I don't like tea, but I force myself to drink tea. If the tea's going to make <laughs> me go to sleep, I will learn to like tea. Get some you of know? that sleepy time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, I love the aspect of being able to create a new reality from what I, like four years ago, you probably would have said, like, I definitely don't think I would have been here. I probably would have been lying. You've seen that meme of the little stick figure lying in a pool of tears. Like that. (laughs) Yeah. That was me. And you couldn't tell me that at, you know, four years later, I wouldn't be there. Um, So I just feel like immense gratitude for not being there anymore. And I guess that gratitude causes me to want to share it with other people. So listen, you don't don't have to be here. First of all, if you want to be there, I honor and respect your decision to be there. But just know when you want to get up, you can. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so beautifully said. So, I mean, you're really deep into this holistic health stuff for yourself. You've been... Mm -hmm reflecting a lot on what you need for your body, mind, and soul. And I'm wondering if you have some tips that you could share. I'd love to get your top three tips for other Spoonies out there. Um, Maybe others who are living with MG or others who are living with another kind of chronic illness. What would you offer as your best three pieces of advice? Um, Let's see. Number one, I would say to... Hmm, that's a good question. Number one, I would probably say to not allow the shame to take over. So I know it's scary. I think it's important to have at least one or two people that you can just be vulnerable with and not be afraid to be vulnerable with. Share with them how you're feeling about your illness. Let them um, check in on you. Allow them to help you on your way because chronic illness life is a very, very lonely at times even though the people around you may not have a chronic illness they can still be that shoulder that you never knew you needed to cry on or that helping hand when you really want to clean your house but you just have zero spoons left and they can come over and clean your house for you like yes we have so many missed opportunities because we're afraid to open up and be vulnerable and say the illness got the best of me today I don't have it Um, Number two would be to, I think, develop a practice of mental wellness, whatever that looks like for you. If that's five minutes of meditation, if that's journaling, if that's like taking daily walks, something like uh, standing in the grass barefoot for five minutes, just things that 
um, will allow you to quietly reflect and just sit in silence and quiet those thoughts because I know that when you're dealing with a chronic illness, your mind is going a thousand things and what if this and what if that and all the things that you have to do, all the things you want to do, all the things that could go wrong. But just those few moments of just quiet and reflection and checking in with yourself. How am I mentally today? What is it that I mentally need to flourish today? Um, and also honoring how you feel. There are days, and even though, and I do, I do share. <laughs> there are days where I'm just not feeling it. And I honor those feelings. I don't dwell in them, but I honor them. And there's a difference, which I had to learn. Like, yes, you can be upset, but you don't have to be upset for a full year. Like, be upset yes. for... Give yourself a moment and then move on. Yeah, and then just pick yourself up because you got this. You you got this. Um, and lastly, I think that I would say have a... Um, what I call your MVPs, most valuable practitioners. Your doctors are your support team. They're the people who are going to take you from where you are to where you want to be. And y'all have to be on one page. So I have a specialist, I have an OBGYN, and I have a primary care. We all talk <laughs> because we all need to know what Morgan's body is doing and why we're doing this. And it needs to be cohesive. And um, if you at any point in time feel like, you're not getting the best quality or you need another opinion, do it. Don't be afraid to speak up for yourself. Don't be afraid to ask questions. My specialist and I, so now that I'm kind of better, my, the majority of my appointments are just us talking and just having questions in general. But when I was going through the thick of it, I would come in every single um, appointment with a notebook full of questions asking him things that I wanted to know and things that I should try. What is is his thoughts on this and what is his thoughts on that? And at first it was scary because I didn't want to say, oh, she's ignorant or she's this and this or she's getting on my nerves or she's taking time away from something else. But this is happening to me and I need to understand so that I feel comfortable. So never hesitate to ask a question, never hesitate to ask out and never hesitate to honor yourself. Those are my three takeaways. I think those are awesome. Those are really, really rich (laughs) tips. What about my last top three list is things that give you unbridled joy. Where do you turn to when you need to light yourself up, when you're maybe having one of those down moments and you need to get yourself back out of it? And these can be like indulgences. They can be guilty pleasures even, or comfort activities if you're like looking at a flare, but like places and, and things that you turn to, maybe people you turn to as well, that fill you up when you need to refill your cup. Right. So I told you before, I'm a lover of Coke Slurpees. Anytime. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm a, I think I put in my bio at one time, this is like when Twitter first came out, I put that I was a Coke Slurpee enthusiast. I, don't know. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, but so, yes, I if I need to pick me up, if I've been having like a really, really rough day, and this is like year long, like I drink mm. Slurpees dead of winter, I will go get a Slurpee and like that cool sensation just overcomes me and makes me feel so, so good. Yeah. Um, and then as far as people, I have like a few, maybe like three people that if I just need to talk something out, yeah. I'll call them and just talk to them and 
I think it's also important to know who your people are. So I know if I want somebody who can, who just going to kind of like affirm what I'm saying, I know who to call from that. If I want somebody who's going to push me to go a little harder or to kind of get kind of give me some opposition, I know who to call from that. Um, and so I call based on how I'm feeling in the situation that I'm facing. Um, and then for me personally, I find joy in just being creative. So I don't really talk about this on my blog, but <laughs> I call myself like a serial creative. So I do a lot, um, whatever I'm feeling. So like I paint, I take pictures, I draw, I journal, mm. I make candles, I make bracelets, like whatever I'm just feeling. I'm like, how am I feeling today? Um, I just, I just go from port from there and, those are things that, so what I call, one of the things that I've talked about is having like a joy list when practicing gratitude. So I'll go yeah. through my joy list of like 20 to 30 things and just say, well, oh, what's so it's, not, it's not three things. It's 20 to 30 things. I love that. Because sometimes you got to put them in rotation and just find different things. So I'll just look at the list. And I'm like, I haven't done this in a while. I do that. And it's just like, yes, this is what I needed to get away. Um, especially when I'm in the house. If I'm able to get out, I love adrenaline-seeking things. So I have a motorcycle. I'll ride my motorcycle. I love roller coasters. I love bungee jumping and um, just impulsive things that people really don't do. (laughs) Well, the things that make your heart race. Yeah. Yeah. But I love that feeling that, like, those type of things make you feel alive. Mm, Um, Yeah. So. I think that's awesome. That's a great list. So what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you and the MG and chronic illness community in your continuing work? Oh, well, um, so I do blog you guys. So please check out my blog. It is was will be.com. I S W A S W I L L B E dot com um and you can also follow me on instagram and on facebook and on youtube is was will be blog for all of those things but um just support if you feel compelled i never want to put pressure on people but if you know someone who could benefit from some of the things that i'm doing please share it um and also i'm always looking for people similar to what lauren is doing here i have a segment on my blog called pass the mic where i like to highlight other spoonies for them to share their stories because it's like hey i have something similar and i can relate to what you're doing and so i never again I'm big on community and I'm big on people not feeling alone in their journey. So I like to spotlight other people and give them a chance to share because people get tired of hearing me talking about myself. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm not getting tired of it. So what's next for you? What's next in your advocacy journey and in your wellness journey? Um, so advocacy, um, This year, I had actually planned on doing the MG um, walk. So I did it last year. And last year, it was a horrible year because it rained on the actual MG walk day. And we didn't even get to finish the course. And I wanted to kind of do that again today. On my website, I sell t-shirts. That basically, so there's a couple of different variations. But I donate those proceeds to the MG walk at the end of every year. Um, and it's That's not just awesome. specifically for MG, like they're more so chronic illness shirts. So any chronic illness um, can sport them and wear them. And um, I would love to, I think when they kind of develop some type of community um, for people with MG to just, you know, feel empowered, like people, especially people who have dealt with like those dark periods of like depression and self-hate. 
some type of community for them to learn how to affirm and believe in themselves again and dig themselves out of that hole. Like I did it and I can talk about it, but I feel like there's something so powerful when a group of women can get together and uplift and empower each other. Like, oh my gosh, I get so excited just even thinking about it. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And remind everyone where they can find you again. It's is, was, will be blog on social media. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And, um, for myself personally, I'm going to, you know, just continue to eat healthily, going to, you know, I'm a month and a half in, so I, I re- after that fishbone accident, yeah. you know, chicken never did that to me, so I had to take no. a couple of years. <laughs> I revisited pescatarianism for the month of August, and it went very well, so now mm-hmm. I am a month and a half in, and Um, I'm just trying different things to just make sure that I'm giving my body the best that it can, um, receive in order to be its best self. Like, I don't know. I would love to. Um, so today I had an amazing day. I actually went for like a mile run and then I did a little workout, you know, a little circuit. And then I got on my Peloton and I was like, I haven't felt this much energy in like years. I would love if by the end of this year, if I'm able to run a 5k to make it full circle to where I was when I first got diagnosed. But I'm not going to put pressure on myself to necessarily meet that deadline um, because I don't want to be disappointed. But if my body allows it, that's what I'll shoot for. So maybe not even this year, maybe by next spring. We'll, we'll give myself some a little bit more room. I love that. I think that's so wonderful. And like participating in the MG Walk. I mean, we know COVID's going on. Things are a little different right now. Yeah. But- um, hopefully by next year, things will have cleared up a bit more and you'll be able to participate more with others. But Morgan, you have such a lovely, vibrant energy. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and for being on the show. It's just been an honor and a total pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.